Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Making Good, a podcast about the people, products, ideas and initiatives doing the work the world needs now. My name is Lee Evans. I was joined this week by Will Sandy, landscape architect and designer who's recently returned from a British council project in Caracas, Venezuela, which looked at innovative ways of activating and reinvigorating public space. We talked about his work with stakeholders in Caracas and how it was informed by his wider approach to design, challenging ideas about what counts as good public space, how to make design meaningful, and the ways that rethinking temporary interventions can both enhance the experience of place for members of the public and the economics of large-scale developments. I've been an admirer of Will's and a friend, full disclosure, for, for many years now, and I really enjoyed spending this hour talking with him about the threads that run through the Caracas project and his work elsewhere, including in, um, in Tirana, also there with the British Council, and across London and elsewhere in the UK with the Edible Bus Stop and others. He's a really erudite, uh, playful speaker who I think speaks to some of the most important issues we're dealing with in cities at the moment, and I hope you get as much from our conversation as I did. Well, as an installation, um, an exhibition rather, of, um, of work um, in the Building Centre in London looking at this uh, Caracas project um, running from the 5th of March, which I'd encourage you to go, um, go along to and visit if you're interested in great design, inclusive public space and ways of delivering community value with a, with a refreshing irreverence. You can follow us on Twitter at Making Good Pods. And if you enjoy the podcast, as always, please consider rating and reviewing on iTunes and sharing as much as you can on your social media channels. It all helps uh, bring our guest work to a wider audience. I hope you enjoy. I'm Will Sandy. I run a small landscape architecture studio and design practice in London, uh, working across a variety of different scales, styles and, uh, and spaces. Wonderful. Thanks, Will. Now, I notice you've just got back from a um, British Council-funded um, project in Caracas. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the British Council put out an open call back in um, June 2018. Doesn't seem that, that long ago now, but obviously is. Um, and they, they did an open call for architects, designers, kind of a vast sort of remit to look at um, innovative solutions to sort of public spaces and how you might reinvigorate urban areas. Um, I thought, you know, sounds like an interesting project and given the kind of context and climate over there, it felt like it was a, a good project to, to be involved in. So I put forward some ideas and, and fortunately uh, was selected to go and I embarked on my first trip to Caracas back in November 2018. So I've never um, I've never been to South America. I don't know anything about Venezuela. Tell us about the trip. What was it like? Um, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research and I think if anyone was to put Caracas into Google, they'd be coming up with some quite interesting images and a lot of uh, various political uh, kind of documentation. But I feel that you know you've got to see good in all in all places, and that might sound naive, but people are still living there. People are getting on with their daily lives, and despite the wider kind of political economic situation, there's there's a real sort of determination from those that can to to try and make a change. And so, I dauntingly got on the plane at Heathrow and uh, made the trip over to South America, first time in in South America, and I thought I'd start at the top. So. Yeah, arriving there is a little bit, um, well, I don't know what I'm going to expect, but, you know, that could be said for the whole of South America as a whole new continent. So it wasn't to say that I was worried per se about what was going on in the country. It just, it, you know, with every new sort of step in your 
life and career, it can be quite a exciting and thought-provoking a journey. So, and what was Caracas like? Can you can you tell us a little bit about your um, your impressions of the city? Well, I mean, the most sort of striking thing is that is the kind of green grey divide. You're, you've got everywhere from every point within the city. You see the Avila. That's their kind of soul of the city, if you like. It's this huge green tropical sort of backdrop that divides the the coastline of the Caribbean and the metropolis of Caracas. Um, you know, it, it was the gateway to South America before, you know, direct flights went to Brazil. Everyone flew through Caracas and therefore, you know, built, built, built on the oil and the car. Um, they've got the largest oil reserves in the world. So back in the 50s, you they were commissioning architects from all over the place. They had the, the landscape architects who did Central Park do their country park. They had some incredible other, uh, who else was there? Oh God, the guy who did the um, Esplanade in Brazil set up an office there just to facilitate the works he was doing in Venezuela at the time, just to give you an idea of sort of that scale. Um, incredible architect called Villanueva who designed the, the University of Central Venezuela. Um, bizarrely, he comes from Croydon, from Spanish descent. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's a few English connections going out there. Um, and, yeah, the interplay between interior and exterior is incredible. And that idea of that kind of modernist concrete aesthetic linking and being kind of permeated with the kind of tropical verdancy of the country is, is fantastic. Um, you know, it it is in sense of flux and therefore there are some, you know, gritty bits to, to use, a, want to use a better expression. Um, the one thing I did before I went, actually, to try and get a better view was to to sort of develop a, you know, the simple viewfinder that we all used in like art class back at school, where you kind of framed something to kind of create that, that vista. I put together, based on the project being called Reframing Spaces Caracas, I just put together a simple one that I could send out before I went to the project team and the students that I was going to be running a workshop and just said, can you focus on the positive can you show me something in the everyday that you really like and that could be as simple as some plants growing out of a crack or someone's done a beautiful piece of artwork or, or just the way that you you traverse the city that isn't dominated by cars um, and so started to build up through social media a bit of a um, understanding through the eyes of the people living in it day to day rather than the eyes of the media telling us stories from their side of um things it was so that was that was sort of a great starting point and it also invited the guys I was working with to look at things with a fresh perspective so that was useful for them can you tell us a little bit about the um about the people that you were working with I know the the British Council led over here but I think and you know as is a thread running through a lot of your work it, it's very much about the people on the ground and the um and the collaborators um um in the places in which you're working the participants can you tell us a little bit about the setup over there um so f f the interesting thing about this project is my um sense of personal space i kind of joked that it was a bit like uh bill murray when he went to do that the uh, lost in translation and you're sort of cut off from things i was in a bit of a cocoon just to, due to safety um and so my kind of understanding of the city came through the people i was working with and i was fortunate and I guess the council were able uh, through a number of ways to facilitate my journey. And I, I'd done a lot of research prior to that. So I said, I want to go, I'd like to go and see this. I'd like to understand 
the kind of juxtaposition of the formal and informal city. Um, the team they put together was amazing, uh, working with local architects in Kersionis, who are sort of socially minded architects, um, a sort of social ge- geographer called Luis Rabogola, and um, also sort of some other curators who work at the both universities called uh, CCS 450, which is a sort of celebration of independence, but also a architectural platform where they curate individual projects and actually run design competitions and source funding from outside of the country to facilitate these fairly humble but also ultimately quite um, exciting and innovative projects that change the day-to-day living in those neighborhoods and so I had this kind of crack team that I've known of and I'm sure there are many others and, and there are a lot that I've gained over the two years I've been working on this project both outside expats who've left the country and those who are still there um, so the British Council kind of hold the space and yes they've got a criteria but the criteria is one that I really enjoyed and so understanding and reframing the kind of idea of what it is to be a public space in a city where there are a lot of constraints embodying the idea of critical mass I guess saying it isn't a safe space to be after a certain hour of the day but what if a lot of people do occupy that space and so I got reclaim the street reclaim the streets you've got ideas like international parking day that started in San Francisco and is now sort of stemmed into parklets but here it this idea of tactical urbanism is still quite new. And so I, second day I was there, I gave a talk about my work in the UK and Europe and also a broader sense of kind of this idea of tactical urbanism and sort of meaningful meanwhile and not just about pop-up burger bars and kind of things that are, we're more accustomed to in London and, and the big cities in the UK. Um, and saying these things are right because it's part of the process. And so a few of the architects I was working with said, thank you for validating this idea of temporary informing permanent and not just a direct route to the permanent. I think this this testbed and kind of further process that engages a lot more people is as relevant in the UK and Europe as it is there. But with the lack of funds and resources, it can be quite a, a step-by-step process to subtly adapt and intervene with the, the city's fabric. There was a phrase in there that um, that I'm not familiar with, um, and I wonder if we can just unpack it um, a little bit for for listeners who may also not be familiar with it. Meaning, meaningful meanwhile, um, what is that? I mean, yeah, of course. It, meanwhile is a is a term. Um, I would like to think it comes from Meanwhile Gardens in uh, West London, one of the oldest community sort of socially led gardens in in Europe I believe whereabouts is that I believe I've been past it on the um, on my canal boat so whether you whether you like it or not it is below the 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 brutalist architecture of the Trellick Tower the the garden is this kind of skinny piece of land adjacent to the canal that sort of wraps around the base of the 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 concrete tower and was sort of started as a oh there's a bit of space let's grab it um, oh, people want to skateboard, let's skateboard, let's pour some concrete and the pond created because the canal had a leak and various other kind of happens chance moments that sort of developed this garden quite ad hoc, but it started to facilitate the needs and it, you know, meanwhile became permanent. Um, but in kind of more contemporary worlds, these idea of meanwhile are pre, I guess after 2009, they became quite commonplace when developments had stopped and then big sites were being left empty for periods of time. Um, so that 
you know, throw a load of containers on there, throw some kind of skips or various other things to kind of give it some activation and try and draw people to the areas to give them that enhancement prior to the... I got it. Okay, so like, for example, um, I know in um, in Brighton, we've now got enormous in situ concrete canyons going up all the way along um, the main thoroughfare that leads to to the universities i spoke about it a little bit with um duncan baker brown on an earlier episode of the pod but in the um in the lead up to that um to the to those canyons of um of sky rises glass cloud sky rises being built the the space was being um quite creatively developed handed over to brighton university's got really strong um uh design architecture uh creative um uh, creative schools there and it was um it was handed over i'm gonna forget now um the name of the uh of the uh, center that was built built on there but so that's so it's it's a um it's a it's activating a space um in while you're waiting for a um for some other usage to be um you know the money to be organized or the the permissions to be granted what have you so a space can be used in the interim before before a long-term use is um is, is enabled is that is that the gist yeah, and I think, you know, I would say architecture's not defined by time and these temporary interventions can provide sort of this this exciting vehicle to test ideas in real time and sort of break down this idea of the red line, if you like, that, you know, we're so for so long we've worked within our red line and you can see it across London and other cities where a nice bit of paving ends and the council maintained bit of paving starts and there isn't a conversation because those two worlds for whatever reason don't have that conversation and I think the why, the reason I use meaningful is you know it's a play on words but ultimately these kind of cultural activations can be sometimes a, a tick box exercise for a larger planner larger larger developer who who has to do some nice bits to enable them to do what they want to you know I understand it they've got to make a profit but we've got to create places that are socially engaging and the planning process which uh Craig McWilliams of Grosvenor rightly acknowledged this summer where he said the, it feels like planning's being done to and not for the, the residents who are living within these neighbourhoods and as a result they've had to rethink their work down in Canada Water and I'm not saying they're exclusively one it's just that he acknowledged it in the Architects Journal I think the end of last year and so how do you use these opportunities to to create that engagement test ideas in real time so you're reducing the upfront costs of getting it wrong. You can you can get things wrong or even show people things and they might not like it, but it will show the space in a new light that they might go, well, yeah, you put a park bench in there, but actually it's a much better use for a, you know, we still have cars. It might need to be a, a facilitation for that at the moment, but it also could be a play space. Um, and I think that's where the work in Caracas kind of ended up going because I wasn't, I don't want to be arrogant in in saying, oh, you need this. So let's sort of divest, develop a tool that can be curated and configured and give those citizens agency over what the space could be. Create a toolkit almost. Now, I guess we're at the time, um, at the point in time where we could um, where we could begin to talk a little bit uh, more specifically about the um, the project. So the cube, I believe it's called. Yeah. So. It kind of over time, over a six month period, it, with a with, with a great deal of knowledge and work with the students of both the University of Venezuela and the Simon Bolivar University and the architects that were part of it, also with a team here. Um, it's been a great way of working 
internationally on a you know it's quite a small intervention but designing something that can be modular made out of a multitude of materials resources in Caracas are hard to come by or you're stuck with what they're making or manufacturing at that given time or you wait till the next opportunity similarly in the UK I find it quite a lot that with these projects you're looking for sponsorship or someone to pay for an element if it's you know to go into a festival of architecture or whatever so it has to be adaptive to whatever material you might find and also a showcase of innovative materials or new new sustainable materials that they might not have thought in this application so the cube as a shape was a simple opportunity in its i'm sure it's going to be hard to explain what it does from from a podcast but hopefully let's, let's at least give it a try okay sorry um <laughs> So in, in essence, it's a cube. It drops into a space. It's called the Catalyst Cube. It provides an instant focal point. Um, and therefore, it, it sort of opens out. It spills out into a piece of public realm. And by that, I mean that the doors are all opening in different ways. So you get this interior-exterior space. It, the one in Caracas has a basketball hoop. It also has uh, bookcases. It has a folding-out exhibition wall, um, a stage, um, it hosted puppet shows, 3D mapping, a English lessons and education. We had public speaking and currently the community are now tendering new opportunities to use the space. And ultimately, it's just about kind of catalyzing what this public square or space could be. And it can be open or closed and kind of self, self-managed self by the community. Right. So I was going to ask um, how it's organised, who gets to decide what it's going to be used for at any given point in time. Is this something that kind of just kind of sp- an order spontaneously kind of occurs um, through dialogue and negotiation with users or is it managed by the local authority? How does that work? I mean, there it's it's main, it's kind of managed by the, the municipality of Chacao, which is um, one of seven I'm sure I'll get shouted at for maybe there's six uh, municipalities in Caracas, a bit like boroughs in London, um, and their cultural team have the, the sort of keys to enable it to be unlocked. And they are then with the community programming it so that at nine o'clock it could be used for a yoga class and at one o'clock it could be used for a kind of elderly meeting space um, or at night you could have some more kind of lively activity. Um, I think here in the UK, again, it might be hosted by the, the community in, in a sense by the um, local authority or it could be owned by a developer who's using it as a conduit for further conversation and engagement about the work that will be happening in their kind of demise over the next 10 to 30 years. But it, it provides this kind of tool rather than saying, oh, well, we'll do a pocket park that can't evolve or this is the public scheme that will be given to you in 10 years. Well, let's have some fun. Let's play with this cube and see what it can can be. Right, so the, the design kind of iterates, it kind of evolves as it comes into contact with the um, with the users in the context in, in which it's getting used. I guess that raises the question for me of, um, of, like, of how broadly generic is the design? Was this something that you'd minded from the start to be um, applied in um, Caracas per se, or in South American cities per se, or, or, or any global city. How, how, how was your thinking around that um, kind of um, evolved? Yeah, I think, and also it can be tailored to suit its ge- geographical location. One thing that made me laugh is the guy said, well, we need a piñata hook. <laughs> and I said, well, that's something that 
only in South America, I would, you know, I wouldn't have thought, say, in Croydon or Tottenham, uh, Pinata, well, maybe in Tottenham, Harangay, uh, with the South American community. But so I had to kind of consider that. So there's there's an element of kind of ultra local or cultural elements. Um, in the UK version, we've got a table tennis table. In the Caracas version, we've got a basketball table, uh, net, excuse me. Um, and I think this this can develop over time. I've already started to consider how during the kind of closed time, if you like, it still has opportunities for public seating or a notice board that keeps it 24 hour. Um, and I think it, you know, it can evolve. And that's the beauty of it. In one development in London, I've been considering how maybe you need five of them. And you have one on the kind of each critical gateway to the project. And through the summer, it creates these kind of satellite hubs. And then in the winter, when the weather's a little bit more, uh, let's like today, grey and wet, um, they come together and you might be able to kind of create a cluster or a hub of them that has a bit more of a, a destination. So they're very mobile as well then? Yeah, the idea is they are modular. They're, mod they're mobile with the one in Caracas because their vehicles resourcing there was a little bit harder. Um, it became a kit of parts and it was assembled within half a day. The one here I've designed that you could just lift it in like a container or, you know, humorously, I tried to think if we could use one of those car transporters that the guys go around and lift cars. Um, and just so that you... you you're mo mobilizing it. So it almost becomes a signifier of change. So people go, oh, you've got the cube. Oh, wow. So what's happening? Let's have a conversation. Oh, there's an event at the cube this week. Or I'm hosting an event or the school is taking it on. They can also just be signposts or, or kind of windows into the community. A lot of the stuff that goes on in, in cities is behind the scenes or behind a wall that you didn't, you, you're not aware of. And so let's have some wayfinding excitingly in Venezuela lighting's a key issue and so there's an amazing technological college where they're teaching them robotics uh, computer science and technology and I said well let's could you develop some form of kinetically driven power obviously there's the sun as well but how do we make it a mobile system where people are engaged in the generation of power so when there are power cuts you've got a sense of illumination it's almost like a lantern for the community Hey, have you heard about um, what's that company called? Is it PaveGen? You've got the um, the kinetic pavement that was um, that was powering um, powering uh, lights, um, illuminating stations, I believe, from um, from the people passing through it. You could have the um, you could have basketball players illuminating the um, the, uh, the the reading areas for the people using the library. How about that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is that was what, literally where I was going next. Uh, I think they did one in. Bird Street, just off of Oxford Street. I think it was the team from Umbrellium who are doing these kind of, uh, kind of instant, kind of integrated technology streets where you can have zebra crossings marked out, and then you can have a catwalk and various other things. So it's probably taking it to next level. And I was thinking for for this in, in uh, situation in in Caracas, probably it would need to be a little bit more lo-fi. And why I say that is because so they can fix it. The ultimate. I don't want to leave anything there. Again, going back to the modularity and the stock component parts, if they want to ma make it or, or change it or evolve it, they have the tools to do so. It's not that I design it, leave it, and then in a few years they go, oh, well, that broke because it was a bespoke piece that only came from X. And then it just sits there unused. Yeah, this is, it's really cool. And it's, and it's, it's a spirit of a way of approaching projects, which I've seen in other things that you've done, which I really, I really, um, 
I really admire. Now, I was going to ask about um, constraints. You mentioned about um, the availability of, say, tools, um, provenance of certain materials and so forth. And indeed, also, you mentioned earlier on that after after dark, certain areas um, are are not are not safe they're not as um, they're not as well policed maybe or you know it's a it's a it's troubled neighborhoods are there other are there, what were the are there other constraints that um that stand out you know i'm thinking about weather climate or whatever whatever it might be that informed the way the design evolved yeah, i mean it it was designed to be robust but then anything i would design in london to a point has to be fairly robust one for longevity and two for the odd occasion that you know, a car might hit it or someone might want to take it home. Um, and so this this thing sort of had a shell in itself that kind of closed down and hunkered down overnight or, or when it wasn't in use so that it still had this kind of usability as a kind of signifier. You could have things on the outside to define events. The basketball hoop was obviously 24 hours. Um, it had a green roof as well, which I think was sort of one of the few green roofs the uh, botanist I was working with said she'd done three I think in the in Venezuela so so again it it was having a conversation about there's an abundance of water because it's a tropical climate when when it rains there's an abundance of sun but there's like here with environmental conversations that needs to be a, a shift and there's still this we're big on oil kind of conversation and to say, you know, they, they look at people on bikes per se and go, like we did 20 years ago, or they go, well, they, they must be poor because they don't right. have a car. So it signifies something quite different in that culture. Yeah. And I'm, you know, again, I don't want to sort of blase over the rest of the, the country. There are significant amounts of migrants moving across the borders daily. And in the time I've been there, quite considerable amounts of people have moved. And so there's sort of this weird, and I'd like to address it as well, because a lot of people I sort of talked to said, well, hang on, you're, you're creating this kind of piece of architecture in a country that regularly has food shortages or is in a kind of a huge inflation um, or, you know, water, uh, electricity um, shortages, and you're going to put a pavilion in a square? What, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, yeah, okay, I'm not a politician. I'm not a healthcare specialist or a kind of anything from that background, but architecture and design and art culture is, has a value. And I think from what I've experienced from the people I've been talking to, and it felt like they came from various walks of life and not just from the sort of middle class up, it gave them a sense of sort of place or a, a focus to kind of think about spaces. And that's what these guys that I've been working with have been doing. There's something, it's like a richer, like more nuanced, um, activated extension of the really broad brush um, thing that I always think about I associate with the name of Jane Jacobs you know like an over overlook street there that if and I think most people this would resonate with um, if you it's not like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you're like okay we've got food we've got shelter now can we start thinking about having some um, something um, you know some warmth or some um, or, or, or 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 a picture hanging on the wall or, or a statue in the square if you these things are all kind of symbiotic right and they and they move around if you if you create an area or a sense of um, of care of investment of 
investment's too cold and dry a word. If you create a sense of um, of a space that's looked after, that's been loved and cherished, that something of that something with meaning has been um, has been has been added to that space, and that can galvanise that can galvanise aspects of what it means to be human, which can kind of help you. Like surely, I would have thought help help transcends some of these difficult situations without meaning to belittle them and suggest that you can solve everything with a you know with a with a with a good bit of design surely that this has to be um people can see this has to be part of the as part of a palette of of options oh yeah no no i just what i wanted to do is be kind of sensitively aware and demonstrate i wasn't just bowling into a country with a multitude of different challenges and saying oh you know i've created this fantastic thing without acknowledging that there are other sort of challenges going on. Um, but you're right, I think the ideas around psychological well-being and mental health are, I, you know, those are sort of two areas of my work at the moment, if you like, the mental health of the human being. And if that's good, then, you know, the environmental health, surely, similarly in the healthcare situation, if the doctors and nurses don't have a good sense of psychological health and, and physical health, then they're not going to be as productive or efficient to maintain kind of making those who are going in to get fixed well. And so I, giving a focal point and a place for community to come together, reducing isolation, having a point where people can just come and go, excuse my language, what the fuck is going on? Um, like, then we all need to have that. And I guess that comes to sort of third space theory, if you like, the, the three kind of pillars of our kind of need, needs amongst, as you said, food, water, etc., are having a roof, having a home, having a work or kind of a place to go. And that third space, and that in, in kind of European terms could be the, the pub or the library or um, the barber shop or the nail bar or, or, you know, across different cultures in London, there's a whole world of different things the park the skate park for and so providing this third space with the cube this kind of instant activation starts to have these conversations you can see the act these p places being adopted across the city and this just provides a little bit more formal formality to to prove or show oh well hang on okay we didn't think about having a stage or we didn't think about having a book bookshare library or oh this cube can do these things and i didn't I want to see it being used for things that I couldn't even imagine. Right, allow uh, allow further iterations down the line that come from just the ex it, 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 the experience of it being used in a place, and people going, "Now, oh, hang on a second, let's use it for that." Um, it's quite uh, it's a subject quite dear to my heart, and I, I've got a feeling it's a thread that runs all through your work. But you know, when we're talking about um, um, benefits, psychological well-being, it's it's impossible for me to imagine um, anything else than that, um, that having something like a green roof, but having nature included in these um, in these works, in these installations, is um, is um, is going to um, is going to enable or allow those um, those kind of positive benefits. Was it um, was it difficult to? When we're talking about, talking about the climate, and I'm thinking about how you'd put a green roof in somewhere that's um, arid for a lot of the year, or at least not arid, but very, very hot, and then deluges. What was a was it an option to maybe um, leave out the green roof, or was it a case of no, we're going to do it. We just have to figure out how um, how we're going to how we're going to make it work. Um, I think, as you, as you're aware, and through conversations we've had over the years, the kind of any opportunity that I can have within reason and where it's applicable, add some green stuff. 
you know, it's just it's sort of a no-brainer. And that comes from both the kind of the obvious visual and psychological well-being um, to the more productive and kind of, um, you know, biodiverse, obviously. But it can start to manage the, the kind of immediate environment. So one of the ideas, again, for the next iteration is, well, you, you know, now we're having a green roof, it's going to attenuate water. Well, what about having a tank? And so whether that's inbuilt into the roof or, you know, it's simply just got a ba- like a, a bowser kind of a, that you have at the bottom of your garden shed. Again, it's collecting water. And that's, again, another thing that they ha- is a shortage. And so you could start within reason to look at it as a grey water resource. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, food production, another one. That's something that's been apparent in a lot of my work in the last 10 years, working with the studio, the Edible Bus Stop, and... and just in my general work is you have a delayed gratification. You understand where food comes from. Again, food shortages across the world. Provenance is a big thing within the kind of our our world. Um, and it also, from a social side, has a benefit. You don't, you know, walk through the Royal Parks. They're stunning. The rose bushes, everything like that in, in Regent's Park, per se, in London. But you don't have a sense of communication where over a tomato plant, Yes. In, a, in a community garden, there's something that you're kind of nurturing and getting a reward from. It's tactile, the smells, and you know that it's destined to be, you know, you, you're eating it and it'll be re, re, replenished. I heard John Little on uh, on the brilliant um, Sarah Wilson podcast, Roots and Ordered, recently um, talking about about that um, in relation to, um, you know, blackberry bushes or, or foods that, that's, um, that's growing on the, um, that, that you can eat growing on the side of the road or in the, or on your uh, trees in your council estate, what have you, that, 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 that when you, when you've got this free resource that just replenishes itself endlessly, um, it, it, it adds like a really important layer of, um, of, of, satisfaction of well-being to um to your experience of um experience of place but I d- <coughs> excuse me i do also like i think we all have to acknowledge that um areas have to well they have to look good and they, and i guess while stay, staying with the with the question of food growing just for a second are there are there specific species that you kind of come back to and come back to because the plants are pretty hardy they don't look they don't look a met like Okay, so everyone likes um, blackberries, but you can't just grow blackberry bushes every everywhere. That's not really um, that's not really an option. Are there um, a set of um, a set of food sources of fruits of vegetables that you um, that you that you know we keep coming can keep coming back to that are easy? I mean, yeah, easiness is is something. Maintenance is another with dwindling maintenance budgets. So, again, in, imparting food or in investing in food production gives people a vested interest, and therefore more kind of time will be spent rather than if it's just ornamental sometimes you you just let it go um plants that i mean fruit trees they're brilliant um rhubarb has always been a rock star of the community sort of social public growing um because again it's one of those sort of cut and come back plants it it looks fantastic sort of architecturally um the conversation we had in uh Albania when we were working in the capital there was actually you know we're very big on kind of urban food production here in the UK and we kind of went over there thinking oh that you know it's a natural progression to create some urban food growing in Tirana but the reaction we got was actually no this this is sort of reverting back to when we were under Enver Hodja 
And we kind of went, oh God, okay. Yeah, they were like, well, we grow potatoes and cabbages and we don't want to do that anymore. We want to be enjoying the more cosmopolitan life and catching up with the cappuccinos and the cocktails. <laughs> and, and so we went, okay, well, let's, again, using the word reframe, let's reframe it. So you like cocktails or, you know, infusions in your tea. So let's grow mint. Or so you can have it in your, your tea or you can have it in your mojito and we'll grow some strawberries and cucumber and maybe pims or similar things. And they kind of went, oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, that, that makes more sense to us. That's more in keeping with where we're growing as a, as a society. And so, and so simply I've sort of, you know, anyone who says, oh, I've grown something on my windowsill and it's died. I said, well, you can't really kill salad leaves, can you? I mean, you've got to try pretty hard. And as long as you keep cutting them and eating them, they should come back um, and it tastes so good and it's a conversation to have with your mates when you're making your mojito oh, I grew the mint in the you know in the kitchen in the garden on the balcony or whatever um, it's just a nice thing to do it tastes loads better too just as a just a bracket what was the um, what was uh, the project that you're working on Tirana was it um, are there were there threads running through that which you can see through the um, through the Venezuela one or was it a very different um, very different project um, I mean, yeah, there are there are some sort of parallels. I'm not going to go too too far into them, but you know, they were under a regime in in Tirana and in the since I can't remember now, '94 or '96, they've had a very dynamic um, kind of running. And the current prime minister Eddie Rama has formerly an artist before he became a politician. Uh, this again came through. Um, the British Council and a wonderful lady called Vanessa Norwood, who was at the AA Architecture Association and is now the creative director at the Building Centre. And she kind of co-curated with the, the British Council and working with Stanton Williams Architects, we went out to look at the former dictator's villa, the, the, one, the one building in the city that hadn't really been thought about and sits in darkness in an area called the Block or Blocku, which is akin to those who know Shoreditch or other kind of dynamic cultural areas of, of capital cities. And yet it's sort of this odd, quite grand, but not over, overtly grand house sitting in a nice plot of land, but yet they don't know what to do with it. So we, again, were tasked with looking at the garden, which was quite a refreshing way to, to be brief rather than focus on the building that is the kind of the premise of where he lived. And, using the garden as a platform to create a conversation about the future uses of this building that comes with a very tricky past. There were those who believed what he did was good and then there were those in the middle that lived through it and the younger sort of 20-year-olds who just look at it as a nice piece of architecture and, and don't have that real connection because they weren't born. And yet they can't pull it down. They don't want to turn it into a museum per se because it's a it needs to be acknowledged but not celebrated it's a contested space right yeah and you know we with stanton williams they designed a pavilion to host events a bit in a similar way albeit more of a structural piece to the cube as a way of kind of getting people in and hosting events and then we designed a physical kind of growing frame that bridged the fence and so you had a seat three seats either side three different parallel structures one sitting in the garden and one sitting on the street so you had a physical and symbolic bridge that made that link across the kind of public private threshold and you could kind of sit and look in or sit and look out and sort of have this conversation about should this be open and, and ultimately we just said if, this, if you're going to do anything just open the gates 
<laughs> you know, because we were walking, the fence was only a meter and a half high. You could easily hop over it on a Friday night. To to what uh, issue with the police and everything else? I don't know, but um, it's it's an amazing city. And I know you're having conversations with Stefano Stefano Bueri, but he's done a huge green master plan for Tirana, and I'm not sure where that is in the, the grand scheme of things, but. Over the last, say, 20, 30 years, the dynamics of Tirana have changed. And again, it has a, a tricky history with um, contemporary reference to Taken and various other films. Um, but Eddie Rama decided, as, as a couple of gestures when he became mayor, let's just paint the buildings. They're grey. They're very um, kind of over time. And so he went out with a team and painted patterns. Stripes, polka dots. You go down the central boulevard of Venezuela, uh, Tirana. It's a, it's like being assaulted by by color. And he and and it was funded, I think, through through the EU or through somewhere. And and someone said, but you know, is there a compromise? We can't just go mad with color. And he said, well, the compromise is gray. And he said, well, I then walking through the neighborhood and I'm talking to people who run shops and cafes and they're fixing things and the streets become alive again and you know reverting back to the ideas of jane jacobs or whatever it's that kind of activity on the street that starts to change the dynamic color is a simple thing to do and through that i mean he was laughed at but ultimately it worked and madness sometimes or these kind of eccentric ideas really transform cities um, on the subject of um, of adding um, adding colour and, um, and and challenging how spaces are used, one of the uh, one of the favourite one of my favourite um, projects of yours is the um, was the uh, was the benches in um, in Brixton. Could you um, could you just outline that a little bit? Because I think there's a nice um, there's a there's a nice little kind of segue to be made into. I I never I never really thought of the the kind of parallel between the two, but I guess you're right. Um, so we, we were working with the Brixton Business Improvement District um, on quite a humble project on Cold Harbour Lane, a building called Southwick House also goes under the name of the Barrier Block. Um, again, a, a sort of a housing estate with a interesting past and one that was on the fringes of the kind of redevelopment of the centre of Brixton and the new kind of cafe culture and bar culture that's kind of swarming through um, London. and we were talking to again a, a wonderful company called Vestra who make furniture from Scandinavia um, definitely check them out because they're pushing boundaries in sustainability um, but yeah they they kindly from Clarkenwell Design Week gave us some furniture and with some small amount of funding we transformed the gateway into the estate again engendering a sense of pride working with the community and it humbly was just putting in a few seats a couple of trees and getting the lights put back on getting it cleaned, you know, just transforming it in a way that transforms the daily route of people going to and from their homes. But, and I'll get back to where we're going, but ultimately this, this involved a conversation with the local constabulary and they categorically said, we do not want any new furniture, any new street furniture in Brixton. And to quote, I think it was, and if we had our way, we'd remove all public seating across Brixton. And for us, that was almost a challenge as much as anything else. And so, as we always say, we let's put them in for six months or, you know, let's six weeks, if you, you know, depending on how they go. And if they do cause antisocial behavior, we'll remove them. 
ultimately they always cause cause social behavior because they encourage people to gather and within a sense of hours you've got people sitting there who probably wouldn't have entered that space opposite the new cafes and got sometimes you get amazing conversations and so we started to look at where are the other public seats in Brixton we identified one typical park bench I think in the whole of Brixton from a one <laughs> a quick a quick analysis and the, and the rest you can just find the plugs where they used to sit um, so if the back broke they'd remove it rather than fix it because it was a sign of you know detritus and whatever else so in Brixton in Windrush Square they've put in these single chairs with arms that I would call secret agent chairs because you kind of sit at 30 degrees to your person you're with and you talk over your shoulder about you know the briefcases behind the tree or whatever (laughs) you bring your own brown envelope (laughs) exactly and and it is a place of congregation and there is a community and so we said well let's let's celebrate these let's put them firmly back in the public eye and and using the the idea of razzle dazzle which is a world war ii technique to sort of distort and play with the the shapes of boat Oh, wait a minute. so to put when 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 they were looked at through periscopes, you couldn't tell what what on earth you were looking at. Is that yeah, I guess it, to to sort of conjure in the mind if you think of sort of a mad zebra painted on the side of a a boat with, and they've done them in different colours. I think there's still one on the on the Thames painted by a street artist, but Peter Blake did one in Liverpool, um, and this idea was just to put them firmly back and introduce a load of colour. And so we got talking to the local guys that would come and sit there every day. Oh, why do you need to do this? And we said, well, look, can we just borrow your chairs for a couple of hours? Well, you can have them back. We just want to paint them. We're going to fix them as well. Um, okay, okay, fine. And, you know, while I'm painting one of the benches, this lady comes up with her, her child and says, what, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're, we're trying to, you know, we're fixing up the seats, but also we're painting them to celebrate them and get them people talking about public seating. And she said, all right, okay. Yeah, some of the guys that come down and sit here, they're, they're my patients. I'm a GP down the road. I said, all right. She said, you know, I, I don't condone that they might have a couple of beers, but ultimately this is their, their living room. She said, if one of them doesn't show up, the rest will go around to his or her house to make sure he's okay, she's okay. If they're not, they'll look after them. And so it's sort of this place of, you know, a hub for the community and you know, I would say it's all right to be drinking a craft ale or a nice glass of white wine on a park bench, pub bench 200 yards down the street. But, you know, a couple of guys having some beers on these seats in the centre of Brixton seemingly was against all odds. Um, and they they would say, look, I don't have a garden. I don't have a space, but, I, you know, I want to be out. If you look at social isolation, it's the same as smoking 20 cigarettes a day. So these guys coming out to meet is it's a great sort of free and accessible place to go just to wrap up where did, did was was it just those benches or was there um, did anything else um develop from um develop from that project um i think it, it sort of opened a discourse again and it's something we use it's something that that vestra who who make furniture use as a their ceo is quite a dynamic character and he uses the brixton project as a, as a good case study of how a simple intervention, adding some public seats, can engage and um, act on social activity rather than antisocial activity. If we constantly look at this idea of reaction rather than prevention, and that's across you know all all sorts of society in my mind, then we're we're not we're not creating it, creating a, a, a cohesive society. So, one of the um, 
one of the interesting things I remember, um, I remember seeing the takeover, was it Waterloo Bridge during the first Extinction Rebellion shutdown? Where um, where they created skate park um, trees all the way along, um, a similar kind of vibe, right? Bringing colour um, and um, and a different kind of streetscape to a space, helping people to imagine another the other world that is possible, right? Yeah, I think that's just a subtle adaptation. All right, it may or may not have inconvenienced a few people, and you might not like the way they approached it. But for ten days a week it transformed an area and people were able to skate, play, um, kind of walk freely. There is scientific uh, uh, kind of backing to show that it reduced air, uh, air pollution in those areas, especially on Oxford Street where the buses and the cars weren't traveling up and down. And that to me is a huge argument about why we should pedestrianize Oxford Street. And the funny thing is that Yes, there was a pink boat, and I, which has become an iconic symbol of kind of the Extinction Rebellion movement. But there was arguments about it kind of having impacts on the, the takings of Oxford Street and the surrounding businesses. And yet, in middle of June, July, the Regents kind of Crown Estate closed those streets for pop-ups for, for com- com- consumerism. And I, I'm going, well, you know, if you guys are closing it because it benefits the shoppers, What's what's the difference in my mind? Okay, it's a different, perhaps a different community, but ultimately those big lengths of streets are still closed in the same way. The um, I think the police prohibited um, or, or or managed to prevent um, or a, an awful lot of that that kind of activity. It was or limited it very much to um, to to um, to a small part of um, of Trafalgar Square. One of the questions that um, that kind of nags away at me when I when I hear you talking about these different projects and 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 activating public spaces is: Do you find are you are you generally kind of do you find like public authorities the regulations um, over public space? Do you find them to be is that is it friction for for you? Do you find that you're kind of having to find workarounds to create things which which the authorities don't really want there? You know, in the way that you described with the police and the and the, and the couple of chairs. I think you know they're quite stretched. Um, there's dwindling kind of public budgets, and so anything that might cost money, whether that. You know, you plant a tree, who's going to maintain it? Is it going to get snapped? Do they have to replace it? I understand all of those arguments, but there's sort of a bigger picture. And if we start to em- embrace it and, you know, the idea of if someone paints on a wall and you repaint it over time, they're going to get kind of fatigued and not do it. And if you engage the community to say, well, if you guys embrace this space and look after it, then that will work. Um I think, you know, developers are chomping at the bit just to to get numbers of houses up. And so the the ideas of placemaking are again, there's a big conversation about it, but how much of it is actually delivered on these kind of mass housing projects when all we need is is to get roofs over heads and so, you know, they become car centric, lack of amenities like the University College London report last week that sort of talked about these serious design flaws in the housing estates that we're building and to paraphrase like Wayne Hemingway a number of years ago who ended up designing with with Wimpy or Barrett's up north he sort of said you don't buy a house in a crap neighborhood you know that and I'll simplify it but that 
house bit is the easy bit. It's, you know, quantity of bedrooms, a bathroom, a kitchen, a living space, and the connecting parts. The neighborhood, the community, those are assets that sort of organically grow and perhaps can be kind of directed from a, a larger picture are the key parts to creating these beautifully kind of engaged and active community streets. They're not, you know, healthy streets is a big thing. Um, walking, you know, healthy walking to work, etc. And introducing public seating is a key part of that. Public greening creates more dwell time. It creates, you know, for, for the economics just alone, it houses sell quicker, uh, shops are more likely to be let. People generally spend more on things in greener environments or more hospitable environments, let alone spend more time. Um, so it's it's a kind of cultural mind shift, but it's also a kind of political st- strategic thing and planning thing that needs to be held accountable. But ultimately, they're they're stretched. So it's well. So this is that's the interesting question. Then is um, what are the where is it best for those um, for those of us who want to. Um, who want to drive the pace of change increase the pace of change is it nudge or is it um you know is it nudging through um, better instances of good design showing people what's possible or is it um you know like the, for example example duncan baker brown in the in the interview that i um i did with him um earlier on in the series he was very very assertive that it was um that it was planners Planners are the people that you need to um, that you need to convince, and then change the local plans. So then there are rules in place, um, written, it's written down, and people just just have to do it. I know certainly my backstory. I trained in in Switzerland. One of the reasons green roofs are so prevalent there is because they saw that it worked, so they just said, "Right, you've all got to do it." <laughs> and end of story. So where would where 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 do you see efforts um, being most productive to um, to drive this agenda to make spaces greener, better designed, more democratic? Well, I think you can look at it from sort of a number of number of sides. I guess I would agree with Duncan that planning is is critical and it's it's to hold people accountable to the these policies that are in place but unfortunately can slip through the net due to um capacity and and ways of facilitating it and i think we also live in a society that penalizes rather than incentivizes you know it's easier to challenge someone and make people feel worse or whatever but in my mind surely if you give someone a good reason to be to be good or to do something well then that has a much stronger benefit for everyone and i use the example of um in germany i think it was more of a, a ad campaign than anything else but they did a trial of a speed camera that rewarded the good with the money from those who sped so you know 100 drivers would go through at 29 miles an hour or 25 and the one that who got fined the rest of them would go into a lottery and they would win a a prize at the end of the, you know, to, to me is a no brainer rather than just chomping at the bit to get as many fines as we can. You know, I know when we've got to move away from cars, but that kind of idea of, you know, similarly with rubbish bin bags, if you, if you put out one bag, you get X or, but if you put out 10 recycling bags, cause you've been so efficient, then maybe you sort of get celebrated or uh, I think, I think other ways of just making it fun, inviting and engaging, doing sort of subtle shifts and adaptations. And around the world at the moment, there, let's say the car, for instance, there's, there's a movement to close close roads on the third Sunday of the month. Is you know, Edinburgh, Paris, Bogota, um, Venezuela, 
close their mountain road between 9am and 1pm every Sunday so you can do active sports, running, cycling, etc. That, for me, is sort of, why don't we close Oxford Street every Sunday? Because no one should or has reason to drive there with the amount of public transport that hits that street. So, I mean, but also they're like low-cost changes. And so I was listening to the radio this morning and people were feeling kind of battered by the likes of uh, Prince Charles and Greta at Davos this week. And they feel persecuted and lectured because there's sort of this battering going, you're not doing right. And they're going, but but I recycle at home or I, I've, I've just started flying with, one guy said I just started flying with Virgin because it started using this X new fuel. And I'm going, that's great. And they're not they're not there to, to persecute. And that was something that we had in the conversation in the podcast we did for the developer where I said, let's not look at it and beat people up for what they've done wrong or not done in the past. Let's see this. We've got, what, 12 years, 11 years now, um, according to the IPCC, maybe 10. My understanding of that science now is that it, that, w- that was state that it's 10 years or so to try to get to um, to, to limit the, um, the amount of emissions which would, um, which would make 1.5 degree rise achievable. And I keep reading that that's now when we're two at best but but sorry I, I i spoke over you but it's um every time that no that the the, the 10 year thing comes up now i feel i feel crestfallen because it's like we're talking about a, a target that we're already in the process of um of missing that said every bit that we do does matter yeah yeah so all i'm saying is you know let's see it as a a positive opportunity in in the worst case scenario that we've got a lot of people with a lot of great knowledge and as George Monbiot said at the beginning of the year, if, if those in power aren't able to to pull, put their full d- d- direction behind it, then let's just work in smaller groups and affect change where we can. We've got the knowledge, we've got the resources, and if we can start to find ways to bring about positive change, we can't change things overnight because that would cause a huge distress and kind of controversy. So it has to be done incrementally to make people feel comfortable at the changes at the rate that is is possible i do i do agree i i I, i'm 100 with you that guilt is not a productive emotion to be um to be inculcating um supporting people to see see how things could be um could be different um and 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 the contribution they could make and also you know like not in terms of um pointing the finger but also just like showing the benefits you know like so accentuating the positives closing streets um, look at all of the, um, you know, look at the the air pollution benefits. Look how much easier your your children are, are breathing, rather than feeling guilty for your, um, you know, for having driven in your car or um, or, or or flown in the plane. <clears throat> um, can I just move along? I'm, I'm, we've we've been on for um, we're on for an hour now, and I know we'll need to start to um, to wrap it. I feel like we could um, carry on talking for um, for hours, to be honest. But I, one thing that I um, I wanted to um, I wanted to know was um, if you had a preference if you like starting from here to try to achieve the kinds of um, the things that you want to achieve would you rather start um, from in London with its abundant resources and increasing you know desire amongst key stakeholders to um, to get things done or, or or somewhere like Caracas not just because it's 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 sunny and you can sit in your hammock at the end of the day but because but you know, there's more of a, a blank, uh, uh, a broad canvas, a blank canvas rather. There's um, there's 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 more potential to um, to to almost like feels like to start afresh. 
Um, good question. I think for me, it was timely. It was 10 years of my career. And so it kind of took me out of my comfort zone. It was a, it was a journey of, of thought that I'd been having and it enabled me to galvanize it in a different setting, seeing kind of a different culture and how they kind of look at a city and the wider kind of issues, um, which has given me fresh perspective on London and how I can then potentially adapt and adopt these ideas back here. Um, you know, London's a, a great city, but things generally move quite slowly. And so in some places, it's quite good to work where you're not being held up by bureaucracy. We've always, I've always said, if you can do it, just do it. Um, obviously, don't build a house or anything like that. But if you can make these sort of subtle interventions where you might create a positive change or provoke some thought, then then do it. Because what what's the worst that can happen apart from you might have to remove it and it's your time and resources. And I think these kind of little changes like the chairs in Brixton or other kind of elements just spark a conversation. And even if it's one you don't particularly agree with, it is starting to have these conversations. And so these little interventions, you know, I'm currently sort of putting together an idea for Glastonbury Festival where you've got every man and his dog to a point sort of wandering around a field. And I think if you can put a question or a piece in there that sparks a conversation, it might spark a conversation you weren't expecting, but it's not being within the kind of silos of the industry that we work in about environmental politics. It's putting it out in the public eye to sort of, and it's not coming from a, a, a place either. It's not coming from a one side or the other. It's sort of in the middle going, let have, open it up, let's chat. Um, if that may, if that, I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, but, it, does, um, it, it does. And, um, and without wanting to gloat as, um, as someone who's managed to, um, to secure a ticket for Glastonbury next year, I'm looking forward to see what you produce. I'll definitely wonder why. Um, just before I get to my, um, the questions that I, um, that I always, um, wrap up the pod with, I'm just wondering, um, uh, if you could, uh, say a little bit about, um, projects that you're, um, whether you're working on or things that you've seen other things, other things that, um, that colleagues or people in your circle are doing, what projects are exciting you at the moment? Um, and, um, you know, like where might we be able to see some of these ideas being, um, uh, being implemented in the, in the months, year ahead? Well, interesting. I'm sort of thinking about that and I try to take as much inspiration within the industry as, as out and, when writing down these ideas, most of them were from artists or even as sort of, I don't know whether he's mainstream or not, but the wonderful Gareth Malone, who, if you get to the opportunity on the BBC, he, he tried to start a choir in a, in a prison. And, and it evoked this idea of giving people a sense of purpose within a very clearly constrained environment and working with these people who might have sort of fallen through the cracks or had some difficulties through their life. And, and they all had, again, this sort of similar, similar back, like similar kind of route and, and kind of sense of, oh, well, yeah, actually I didn't want to do that, but it just sort of got there. And now I want to sort of make some good or some retribution. And, and so that's sort of a weird one. Um, I guess I listened to, desert island discs as as much as possible and go through the back catalogue and you weirdly there's a route there's a process for most of them whether it's economists or artists or comedians or sculptors or whoever where they're just steely stubborn determination to do what they want whether it be one of the conran sons who was like 
I've got the name and now I'm basically sort of being held because, oh, he's all right because he's doing that. But actually he had to then prove himself over and above the name or the one I really like is Anthony Caro, who's, you know, Sir Anthony Caro, an incredibly acclaimed sculptor. And he used to work in a garage and he said, it constrained my sense of thinking so much that I worked within this four walls and it was only one day when I opened the door, I could sort of, the, the, the sculpture needed more room and it grew itself. And, and it's that idea that we're all working, you know, hopefully I've sort of challenged myself to, to do as much as I can. And um, in things to see, I would, you know, I, they're kind of historic, I suppose. The Dalston Curve Garden has been there for 10 years, but it's a wonderful kind of port, portal into this green oasis off the, off the high street and Dalston, East London. Um, it was part of a much bigger study of the area and it was chosen as a kind of green space opportunity, started with the Barbican doing an exhibition. And over the last 10 years, it's been taken into the hearts and minds of the community. And you literally step into it and it feels like you've gone on holiday in my mind. And it's, and, and now it, it was, you know, I saw some drawings about how the planners and the developers saw it and they inverted commas called it the kind of, uh, tree street or park street or something, garden street. And that, that contained four, four trees. And actually what I've really enjoyed apparently is that they're having to go back to review and the garden is now informing the design of the buildings. And, and so therefore the public realm is taking a little bit of control. Um, another kind of more creative and I guess direct action project that has been led by a crew of BMXs in North London in Tottenham called The Spot um, took over a grade two listed um, kind of water processing uh, tank or kind of conduits um, and they just started pouring concrete and to the point there is a video online where they hired one of those huge mixing trucks and worked 24 hours because they had to empty it. Um, and as a result, Haringey Council did some refurbishment works of the park, saw that there was this great passion and kind of accepted community that had invigorated this area of the park and built it into the plan. English Heritage even agreed to, the, to it, considering that it's grade two listed, which is a sort of a triumph against the system in a way. And the guy kind of, co-leads co it sort of said he just doesn't understand how they got away with it but you know you've got kids of all ages you've got fashion shoots happening there now you've got people using this space that was dead and is now an active space and I think ultimately it's this you know meanwhile gardens I mentioned before Phoenix Community Garden is another one in in the sort of shadows of center point and perhaps it's it's the semantics the psychology of the space being called a garden and not a park and that's something that I've always sort of used as a reference is that a garden has a sense of ownership. It's sort of a connected, you sort of are included and a park is sort of managed by a higher. You don't, you don't seem to, you know, I wouldn't advocate anyone dropping rubbish in, in anywhere, but you know, if you drop it, you feel like someone will pick it up. Whereas in a garden space, it feels like you're the one who has to be in control of the sort of destiny of where it's going. And to the success of those, they're, They've sort of fought development. They're both in quite high-profile locations in the centre of London, and they're two of the oldest examples we have. Um, JR, perhaps, is some, you know a bit more provocative. Um, he's the Parisian photographer, come street artist, who uses his artwork to kind of 
put the put the focus on communities and give them a voice or a face, if you like. I mean, one of his most prolific pieces in Rio de Janeiro was on a barrier or favela. And he he went in and uh, I got the privilege to sort of chat to him after a talk once. And I said, how do you do it? He said, well, it's like a democracy. I have to go in and pitch my kind of manifesto and they sort of vote on it. And then if they like it, they let me in and then we work. And and he said, what I did is I, I focused on the women. He said, you know, in that kind of culture, the man, the kind of community, that's the head of the family. But yet the women are doing all the things behind the scenes and they go unseen. And so he said, I did this kind of photo piece where I blew their faces up to the size of the sort of facades of the building. And they were looking back at Rio. And it got to a point where he said, I ended up being kind of called in by the mayor of Rio. And he said, I thought, oh, you know, he's going to thank me. It's a great piece of artwork. And he actually kind of castigated him. He said, well, now, now you've put, put all eyes on this barrier. I'm going to have to go in and, and update the infrastructure. And so, again, it's it sort of, I think we were having a conversation before about how culture and art and, and all of these things, music, etc., open a gateway to have wider discussions about the built environment, the environment as a whole. And I think that's that's maybe where I would sort of draw it to close on, on to a point is we can't just be thinking about our own area of work. You know, we don't do that on a daily basis to a point. But for me, most exciting thing is asking the fashion designer or the, the kind of retired accountant or whoever who has their own kind of science or understanding of the world and go, well, what do you think? How do you use it? What, 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 what kind of benefits do you want from the space? And you're going to get a much richer thing than if it's just a group of architects, planners, kind of that kind of sector of society, designing spaces for people and not with them. Amazing manifesto in summary. Will, thanks ever so much. I'm going to just ask you the couple of questions now that I always, I always wrap up with. Um, the first one, can you hear that? Someone's just started drilling <laughs> right outside. The first, um, the first question that, um, that I'd like to ask to wrap up is, if you're king for a day, if you could make one positive, um, one change to create a positive impact, what would what would that be? Um, I think if it's just for a day, I'd like to see every road pedestrianised and just see what happens and see how people deal with it. You know, if it's only a day, it's 24 hours and go back to their cars and whatever else. I think that would be quite an exciting experiment. Probably. Um, Wicked. OK. Um, and then uh, in and, the, and three good things. So, uh, so first of all, um, one book or podcast that you um, that you think everyone should be aware of. Um, I'm sure you're all aware of him, um, Grayson Perry, um, but he wrote a fantastic book. I think off the back of his Channel Four sort of series about sort of masculinity and, and men in in today's world. But it's called The Descent of Man, and it was a great kind of conversation piece about what it is to be a man in in this world. But also, you know how they interact with the rest of society and the different kind of configurations that that is. So I would say, you know, I, I ate that book in, I think, a week. Descent of Man. Like, like, like a lot of the, um, the, um, the references that you made, I'll do my best to, um, to collate them all and put them um, as links on the, um, on the notes accompanying. So, um, so one person or social media account, a media account you find inspiring? You know, vested interest, but, you know, good friend and collaborator, uh, portrait per day. Um, Again, it's it sort of stemmed from a kind of his own kind of development, and he challenged himself with um, 
taking a photograph of a stranger every day for 365 days. And that was from, you know, and I've done similar projects where you, you kind of have this moment where you choose them and then they have to choose you. And there's this sort of dynamic where in London and various other places, people have very kind of fixed kind of ideas about their personal space. But for some beautiful reason, every time he does it, they're fantastic kind of human beings. Or I think he has the odd knockback, but on the whole, it seems like there's, there's a real willing to kind of explore. And he has these little wonderful anecdotes about what they were doing that day or who they are or what they've been, you know, their successes or quite often he gets more professional photographers which kind of puts him in a, a funny place but uh it switches the role which is quite a nice one so yeah portrait per day it's instagram predominantly but um he also has a twitter great okay we'll link we'll link to that and then finally um the um the favorite your favorite place to immerse yourself in nature and why um i think any body of water really you know there's it's just it feels whether it's the canal like kind of in london i live by the lee um and then when i'm down in somerset you've got the avon and the canals down there but give me a chance and i'll jump in it um and also just you know walking along the canal in london to a point all right you've got the busy bit but it kind of engenders conversation i don't know why what it is about water but it kind of breaks down those barriers where again you wouldn't necessarily have a conversation and and for some reason the body the, the presence of water kind of gives that kind of excuse to say hello even if it's just a kind of nod or whatever it seems to seems to be a nice connector amazing well hopefully i'll be saying hello to you on the um on the on the canal on, on my canal boat um before too long will to wrap up thanks ever so much again i could have talked to you um for the rest of the um for the rest of the evening but we'll we'll leave it there for now thanks ever so much and i look forward to seeing what you do next all right thanks very much <laughs>